Lampe, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're listening to the 4 o'clock show with Brett here on your Thursday afternoon. Program is pre-recorded today, but coming up we are going to be speaking with Jeet here of The Nation magazine as he's going to break down whether this debate we're having between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and have they basically had their good feelings go out the window between the two of them. Well, we're going to be speaking with Jeet about this as he's written in The Nation about the so-called disagreements between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and we'll try to dive into that and figure out whether this is more of a manufactured dispute or whether there actually is something to the fact that maybe the alliance between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren has started to fall by the wayside. Also coming up, I am going to be playing back an interview I conducted with Jeremy Vanuk of the Moscow Project back in December. Now, why am I playing back an interview that we conducted back in December? Well, there's a lot of relevant information in there in light of the fact that we have, of course, the upcoming Senate impeachment trial of Donald Trump. As we dive into what a possible Senate impeachment trial could look like and also take a look at some of the myths that we often hear about the impeachment of Trump and also the Ukraine and the Biden. So even though it was recorded back in December, I still think there's a lot of relevant information in there. So we'll be playing that back towards the end of the show today. So obviously we've been hearing a lot about these Hoffler files that were published online by the daughter of Thomas Hoffler. Now, if you don't remember who Thomas Hoffler is, he is the guy that was basically the mastermind behind Republican gerrymandering that occurred after the 2010 midterm elections, when of course Republicans had a lot of electoral success and they were able to get what's called trifectas in a lot of states where they controlled both houses of the state legislature and also the governor's mansion. And when you can Control all three of those after a census year, which occurs every 10 years and years that end in zero, so they'd be like 2000, 2010, and upcoming here in 2020. So Republicans had all these trifectas, and that allowed them to draw district boundaries that were advantageous to them. And one of the guys who was instrumental in helping the GOP gerrymander was Thomas Hoffler. Now, he ended up passing away back in 2018, but his daughter actually went through some of his personal belongings and ended up finding some flash drives that discussed how he coordinated with Republican officials around the country to set up gerrymandered districts, either by political party and also by race as well. And by the way, she recently put all of those files online. If you just Google the Hoffler files, you can go through and read those yourselves and, and take a look at well, some of the extreme lengths that Hoffler and his associates went to in terms of trying to draw districts that were in favor of Republicans. Now, the reason why I am revisiting this is that one of the warnings he actually had among these files was that he was trying to tell Republicans, don't get too greedy when it comes to drawing your districts because it would end up drawing a lot of attention to unfair districts. And of course, that's exactly what happened during the 2010s when you had people in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan and North Carolina realize that they were basically living in unfair districts that led to lots of court challenges. Now, even though most of those court challenges did end up going in favor of Republicans for the most part, it did draw a lot of attention to the fact that we do have unfair boundaries in several states, and it's led to efforts across the country to 
now have bipartisan commissions draw boundaries, which is what happened in Ohio, or even having the occasional court case that actually throws out gerrymandered boundaries like we saw in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. But what I do find interesting about this is that in several of these states that were originally gerrymandered, and I'm thinking of states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and even North Carolina, is that even though they had these Republican trifectas after the 2010 elections, they actually do now have Democratic governors that are guaranteed to be part of the next redistricting process. And also, as I look through the state legislature makeup of several of these states, Democrats actually are not that far off from being able to take majorities in one or both houses. So that does pose an interesting question. If we do have another blue wave in 2020 and we actually have Democratic trifectas after the 2020 elections, should it be Democrats who should gerrymander? Should they take advantage of drawing their own districts? In fact, Minnesota could certainly be one of those states, as we obviously do have Governor Tim Walls, who is guaranteed to be in the governor's mansion until at least 2023. And then we have a DFL House and a hotly contested Senate, which currently is controlled by Republicans, but the DFL is not far from flipping that, and that could very well happen after 2020. So even us here in Minnesota... We could even have possible gerrymander districts in favor of Democrats. So that's kind of a question to ponder is should Democrats gerrymander if they get the chance? All right, we're coming up on our first break of the show. And coming up next, we're going to be speaking with Jeet here of The Nation magazine about the Bernie Sanders-Elizabeth Warren conflict. Is it as big as what's being portrayed in the media? We'll talk about that coming up next. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson here on the afternoon show. So we're joined now by Jeet here. He is a national affairs correspondent at The Nation magazine, as we're going to be talking about a number of topics, including the so-called Bernie Sanders versus Elizabeth Warren topic. So, Jeet, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Appreciate it. Oh, good to be here. Yeah, good to have you back on the show. So in one of the most recent pieces you wrote in The Nation, you wrote something titled, The Real Argument Between Warren and Sanders is About How to Win the Election. And basically you wrote that kind of the real difference between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren is not so much on policy, but more their campaign strategy and which voters they should actually be trying to court once it comes to a general election. So can you expand on a little bit more and kind of what you see as the differences between Bernie and Elizabeth as we head in here? to the to the rest of the primary season sure yeah i mean i think warren um uh their, their campaign has really started to hone in on this argument uh about unity that she's the one candidate who can really unite the democrats um and uh, where you have like a kind of moderate wing of uh, uh the sort of joe biden supporters and you have a more left wing wing of um uh, Sanders supporters. And uh, the argument would be that, you know, like she's a party person in a way that um, Bernie is not, that she's like, 
you know, she is uh, a member of the Democratic Party and, and can work with the moderates and would be like less offensive to them. Uh, but then she also has a lot of real credibility among the um, progressive voters. And so um, it, and underlying all that is the argument that really the problem that the Democrats face is factionalism. Um, and uh, that uh, if the party is divided, um, it'll be much easier. Uh, Trump will win. Whereas if the party is united, uh, they can. Uh, the Democrats can win. Um, and I think uh, uh, it's unstated, but I think the clear sort of implication is that the Democrats have the votes that they need. And um, and there, there's no argument for that. I mean, like they, um, Hillary Clinton did win by three million votes in the popular vote, um, so it wouldn't take much uh, more. Um, I, Bernie is running um, on a very different theory, which is that the way you change, you win, and uh, also change politics is for to bring more people into the system and to bring in like uh, people who were um, Obama Trump voters, uh, people who were Obama voters who stayed home in 2016, and then also people who never voted at all and you know who are kind of alienated from the system. And that's the people Bernie's trying to win in the pri- bring into the party in the primaries. And his argument is, if he can do that, then he can also do that in the general and they can win. Do you think there actually is real, for lack of a better way of putting it, real schism between these two? Or is this kind of more created by the corporate media where, yeah, Elizabeth Warren's entire strategy is just being the big tent candidate among Democratic voters versus, as you're talking about, Bernie being someone who is trying to get people who have been disenfranchised or haven't voted in past elections? Because I'm sure if you were to talk to both of those candidates, you would probably talk to Elizabeth Warren and she would say, yeah, I also am trying to court new voters. And Bernie Sanders would say, well, you know, I I still would probably also like to get some Democratic voters that would want to support me as well. So do you think this is also kind of created by the corporate media or has this actually been kind of a well, I think there's definitely a, there have been attempts by the media to sort of gin up controversy where it's like, you know, uh, as uh, Popeye's friend Wimpy used to say, let's you and him fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's <laughs> really been, uh, uh, you know, like, and people have been trying to like ask them all along, like, well, when are you going to attack the other one? Uh, but I think that aside from, you know, the ginned up controversies, it is the case that uh, Warren is a um, and Bernie do have really different theories of the uh, election and theories about how to win. I mean, I think these are these are genuine uh, differences and they're genuine. Um, I mean, it goes back to even 2016, where like you know Sanders um, uh, initially the sort of progressive wing wanted to recruit Warren to go against Hillary Clinton, uh, and uh, Sanders at that point was willing to defer to Warren. And say like, well, if you want to run, I, I, I won't stop you because we need someone as the alternative to Hillary Clinton. Uh, but I think that this um, is, uh, I think, um, uh, um, that this and Warren in 2016 also significantly endorsed Hillary Clinton rather than Sanders, um, and that's part of her general pattern. Uh, even though she's the most, uh, along with Sanders, the most left-wing of Democratic senators, she really has tried to play ball with the establishment and to try to, you know, keep one foot in there. So I think that this is a real, genuine difference as to how they're doing things. 
Yeah, and we even saw some of the rhetoric between the two campaigns even heat up a little bit, even though it was partially media-driven, where you basically had that memo that Bernie Sanders was directing, or maybe not him specifically, but his campaign directing to people who were doing phone banking, saying that, well, we like Elizabeth Warren, she would be our good second choice, but she's not necessarily trying to expand the Democratic Party overall. And I think at some point, though, this might not be a bad strategy for either a campaign, maybe not to necessarily go full throttle attack and use, you know, low blow kind of attacks. But at some point, they do need to confront each other. Otherwise, they do risk actually splintering their vote once we start getting to Iowa and New Hampshire and further states. Well, the way I look at it is that actually the primaries will be testing the series. Like, I think if Bernie does actually bring in new people, as he's trying to do, as he did successfully Vermont, if he can actually replicate that in Iowa, then he's going to win, and then we will actually be able to test it. And uh, uh, this is not like a, so it won't be a theoretical matter anymore. It'll be like, you know, like it actually works. Or if it doesn't work, then the case for Warren actually becomes much stronger. And you will have to actually try to have some sort of unity candidate that can bring in the existing Democratic base and, uh, and really pull everyone together. So let's move on to another topic and touch on Tuesday night's debate that, of course, happened between six of the Democratic candidates. And as you also read, wrote about in one of your pieces for The Nation magazine, you were talking about how CNN didn't necessarily do the best job moderating that debate, especially when it came to how they sometimes attacked Bernie Sanders during that debate. And by the way, I'm not saying I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter myself, but even as I watched some of the highlights from that debate, specifically when they were even having that interaction talking about whether Bernie Sanders said, do you think a woman can win the presidency? They kind of basically dismissed Bernie Sanders when he made his one comment saying that is correct, that he doesn't think he ever said that. What were your overall thoughts on the coverage we saw from CNN at Tuesday's debate regarding Bernie Sanders and the other candidates? I thought in terms of moderation, it was the worst of the debates because CNN was very biased. I mean, partially against Sanders, but also more broadly, just sort of, you know, using very conservative talking points, you know, like, you know, like basically, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but like, well, Senator Sanders, can you show that your plan won't like, you know, bankrupt the country? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, Bernie, when are you going to stop beating your wife? Like, it's mm-hmm. like, uh, it's not very good. It's, uh, uh, and then, but, but even beyond that, you know, like, like well, you know, like you want to, uh, Wolf Blitzer was asking, you know, while well, saying like, well, the Ayatollah wants American troops out of the Middle East as, uh, as do you, like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, uh, Bernie and the Ayatollah, they were just kissing buddies. Uh, so I, I feel that's bad, and I feel that's bad not just for Bernie, but for Democrats in general, like to have the debate that is uh, uh, so focused on, um, uh, uh, that is like so framed in these sort of conservative terms. Yeah, even as I tuned in for, I think it was like the last half hour of the debate, as I was busy before then, it, it basically just seemed like the moderator questions was, at least as they were going through to each candidate, they were asking each one a specific question about their weaknesses, and they basically read a Republican talking point saying why you're not a good candidate and asked them to respond. And yeah, that doesn't really get too much substance when it comes to debates. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's right. That's right. So, uh, I think that the, uh, and I think afterwards, like it was even worse, they didn't have any Sanders surrogates mm-hmm. on and they were all like everyone on CNN was bashing Sanders. I, I think it was disgraceful. 
Yeah, I've noticed that too when I made the mistake of actually watching one of those post-CNN debate forums. I think I was bored during like the October debate when I was at home watching that. And I kind of noticed that they, it was very different when their panel was talking to like a Cory Booker or an Amy Klobuchar. Then all of a sudden they bring on an Elizabeth Warren and I don't even think they even brought on Bernie Sanders back at the forum or back at their post-debate forum that I watched. But yeah, the, the overall tone of the way they were talking to the candidates definitely changed when they were talking to people who were more progressive versus the more, for lack of a better way of putting it, establishment candidates. So my question to you, though, is doesn't that almost kind of play into like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren's hands to say, hey, the media is against us? And I think in a way that could actually appeal to their base a little bit more to say, hey, the corporate media is against us. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think it's an accident that uh, the Sanders campaign had a great fundraising uh, last night with, um, uh, you know, more uh, money raised than in any of the previous debates. Uh, and they had a huge number of people Googling them. Uh, and I, th- I think people, uh, I mean, if, uh, Bernie can say, you know, like, the corporate media is against me. Um, and Warren could make a similar argument. Uh, I think that's actually good. And I think, um, I think it's very, I mean, I do think, um, that it's important, uh, to, you know, challenge the media not in a sort of Trumpian, well, that's fake news, but to, to, to the point of very specific examples of bias. Uh, when they're there and to be willing to fight that. And I think, uh, earlier Democrats, um, have been kind of, uh, not very good at that and have kind of let the media, uh, steamroll them. I mean, I think that's one of the problems with the Hillary Kim- uh, Clinton campaign that, uh, some of those, you know, butter email stuff, uh, came from the media going unchallenged. We're speaking with Jeet here. He is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine. And Jeet, one more topic I want to talk about with you, and that is this piece you wrote a few days ago about Richard Nixon, where it was basically titled, Nixon's President for Trump, How to Get Away With It. And you basically talked about how, well, basically since Nixon faced the threat of impeachment, we've really seen Republicans being able to get away with pretty much whatever they want. And I kind of agree with you that the Nixon impeachment was more of the exception than the actual rule that we've seen since then, as you were kind of referring to KT McFarland's FBI interview where she was defending Michael Flynn by basically saying, well, Richard Nixon did it back in the 70s, so why couldn't we do it uh, as Michael Flynn in his office? So, can you talk about some of the other examples we've seen with Republicans in terms of using a precedent as saying, well, we did this action because X person did it before us? Yeah, no, I think that McFarland, I mean, and she was a deputy national security advisor to Trump. Uh, I mean, what she basically said was, well, um, Nixon did it and Reagan did it. And what she's referring to is these allegations that in 1980, the Reagan campaign, uh, you know, made overtures to Iran to keep the hostages in Iran until after the election. And I think that's, I mean, we don't know if that actually happened, there are these allegations, but uh, it's amazing that one would cite that as an example, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, well, this has happened and we, we are doing the same with Ukraine. Uh, and with Nixon, I think people, I mean, it's not widely known, but in 1968, as a candidate, Nixon sabotaged the Paris peace negotiations by, you know, like contacting right. the South Vietnamese government and telling them not to negotiate and he'll give them a better deal. Uh, and so, I mean, yeah, I mean, one could also cite Iran-Contra, uh, one could cite Scooter Libby. You know, there's been a lot of cases of Republicans committing crimes and actually being, you know, sentenced and then, you know, by a coincidence receiving a uh, pardon from a Republican president uh, that could be implicated in those crimes. 
And doesn't it almost kind of come down to public support when you talk about this, where Republican voters specifically will basically allow their candidates or politicians to get away with these type of corrupt actions as long as they get benefits on a few issues like abortion or tort reform or lower taxes where, well, damn the consequences. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I think that's true. But I mean, I think there's also, the, uh, it's also the case that Democrats, when in office, haven't pushed hard enough to actually oh, have accountability. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if they had, you know, some of the people involved with uh, uh, lying about Iraq and, you know, um, uh, the uh, torture stuff had to actually, you know, receive jail sentences, well, I think we'd be in a very different world. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that, yeah, part of it absolutely, too, is that even when Obama was elected in 2008, 2009, the strategy kind of was, well, we'll let bygones be bygones, and that's even kind of flowed through if you see Democratic corruption, where even we see that sort of party loyalty on the Democrat side, where we're kind of hesitant to prosecute our own because, well, the public is going to support us no matter what. So, yeah, I think that's certainly an aspect as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of fault to go around, but I mean, mm-hmm. I do think overwhelmingly it is a case that we have, you know, Republicans, right. you know, mm-hmm. charged with serious crimes, and and I mean that 1968 thing. I mean, I keep going back to that, but that was a successful uh, cover-up. Nixon was never charged for that, so mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he, yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, unfortunately, we are up against the clock here, Jeet, and we'll have to leave it there. As we've been speaking with Jeet here, he is the national affairs correspondent for the nation. And yeah, thanks for chatting with us today about some of these recent pieces you wrote. Oh, it was great to be here. Thank you. Coming up next, we're going to talk about some of the conspiracy theories we're likely to see floated once we get into the Senate trial that will take place in the coming days and weeks, as we'll be speaking with Jeremy Vanuk of the Moscow Project. But first, let's get to 2020 talks from Public News Service. You're listening to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. As a heads up, the interview you're about to hear was actually recorded back in December, but I think it's still some really relevant content, being that we do have the impeachment trial in the Senate taking place in the coming days and months with Donald Trump. As we're going to debunk in the interview you're about to hear, a lot of the conspiracy theories you're likely to hear once we get to that Senate trial. Welcome back to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you on the 4 o'clock show here on your Thursday afternoon. And joining us now to talk more about those articles of impeachment and also Ukraine and Russia is Jeremy Vinuk. He is with the Moscow Project and is a research analyst with that organization, and he joins us now on the program. Hey, Jeremy, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Hey, so before we get started, can you tell us what exactly the Moscow Project is and what you guys do? The Moscow Project was set up back in uh, early 2017 as kind of a way to track everything that was going on with what at the time was the Russia investigation. It sort of shifted gears uh, now to be about the Ukraine investigation. And we've been trying to compile kind of the complete record of what's been going on. You know, analyzing everything as it comes in can be a really daunting task just because there's something new every day. Sometimes there are several new things every day, as in, I don't know, today or yesterday. Uh, So we've been trying to keep on top of it and really make sure that we can cut through the smoke and the dust that surrounds these investigations and really give a clear picture of the Trump administration's basically ongoing attempts to undermine American democracy with foreign governments. Yeah, absolutely. And even I'm trying to follow along with these investigations. And yeah, it's tough to keep these names straight. 
who's who, uh, what happened with uh, what scenario. Yeah, definitely glad you guys are doing that work over there so we can kind of keep things straight in terms of what's actually happening with all of these ongoing investigations. Because, man, I'm even thinking back to the Bush years of the 2000s and thought those investigations were ongoing with scandal after scandal after scandal. But, yeah, the Trump administration certainly is kind of taking this to a whole nother level compared to what we had during the Bush years. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, yesterday and today are a perfect example. First, you have a hearing that details really extensive evidence of the fact that Trump basically extorted the Ukrainian government, that he withheld first a White House meeting and then military aid from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky until he announced investigations of Trump's political opponents. And then on top of that, you had the inspector general's report, which effectively debunked a conspiracy theory that Trump has been spreading for uh, more than two years now, which is that the Obama administration somehow illegally spied on or surveilled his campaign. The inspector general's report came out, completely debunked that conspiracy theory, and yet you still have Trump, and now in an interview that is literally happening, literally airing as we speak, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr continuing to push that conspiracy theory and say that the report basically said the opposite of what it said. So let's move on to the actual articles of impeachment that were drafted today, because basically they have to do with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. So, Jeremy, were there any surprises for you in terms of these articles that were drafted against Trump? Did you expect uh, any more to be included, or were you surprised that maybe there was more included than you thought? What were your overall, overall thoughts and takeaways thus far? Um, One thing that I think is notable about the articles of impeachment is that they don't just call for the impeachment and removal of President Trump. They call for him to be impeached, removed, and barred from seeking or holding future office. That's something that differentiates it from the impeachment articles that would have been pursued against Richard Nixon. Uh, It is something that was in the articles of impeachment against uh, President Bill Clinton, but that's something that I was surprised to see. Uh, One thing that I was unsure if we would see, I wouldn't say I'm surprised, but it's interesting to note that they don't explicitly make a case for obstruction of of, uh, justice with the Mueller investigation. And that suggests that Congress is going to continue on the somewhat narrow path that they have defined over the last several weeks, really hammering the Ukraine stuff, really hammering the overwhelming evidence of Trump's misconduct when it comes to uh, Ukraine, but not necessarily bringing in his other corrupt and some would argue, I would certainly argue, impeachable offenses in other realms. Yeah, that's an interesting question to bring up, at least strategically. Could Democrats possibly be making a mistake by essentially not including really anything about the Mueller report in those articles of impeachment? Because at least strategically, you could sit there and say as a Republican that, hey, even the, de- even the Democrats are admitting that nothing was wrong with the Mueller report and Trump did no wrong with Russia. Do you think they possibly could hmm. be making a mistake by not including anything about the Mueller report in those articles? I think that... Uh House Intel Chairman Adam Schiff gave an implicit argument for that particular decision in this morning's press conference. He really stressed that the people who are saying, why don't Democrats wait, why don't they build a fuller case, are really saying, why don't we allow Trump to just continue to cheat in the next election? And by saying that, I think he kind of gives a window into the decision to not include the Mueller investigation in the articles of impeachment, which is that this is about the next election. 
This is about Trump's efforts to subvert democracy, to stay in power, to avoid accountability, to win the future election. And in doing so, I think Democrats will, in one way, kind of avoid some of the allegations that they're just constantly relitigating 2016 and are focusing instead on what Trump has done in office and how that will affect things moving forward. So as we probably will expect, the impeachment will probably move to a full Senate trial, and we're likely to hear as a defense many more of these conspiracy theories that have been floated by the Trump administration and Republicans. And one of the ones that really caught my eye here, Jeremy, and this strikes me as being really dangerous, is that they keep floating this idea that it was actually Ukraine who was trying to interfere in the 2016 election. And not only were they trying to interfere, they were trying to do it on behalf of Hillary Clinton. And basically, and you can talk more about this, this is straight from actual Russian propaganda. That's right. And the Senate has reportedly been briefed on the fact that these talking points come from Russia. We saw memos from the Mueller investigation that basically documented that the Trump campaign heard this conspiracy theory, first from Konstantin Kalimnik, who's suspected of being a Russian agent. He was indicted for some of his work alongside Paul Manafort. And it's really important, I think, to stress that this is entirely mutually exclusive with the understanding that Russia hacked our democracy in 2016, that Russia was behind that attack. Because Republicans have tried to launder their talking points into well, there was an op-ed once that might have angered Trump and a Ukrainian-American contractor at the DNC. That's not what Trump and Giuliani and John Solomon and these others have been pushing. They have been pushing this broad conspiracy theory that Russia didn't hack the DNC, the server was sent to Ukraine to cover something up, they're hiding it, Joe Biden got the prosecutor fired, not just to protect his son, but also to cover up whatever it was that the DNC had done with its server that it sent to Ukraine. And this is just a flat-out conspiracy theory. Even the Republican witnesses, people who still work in the Trump administration, who were called before Congress to testify, said that this thing, whether or not Trump actually believes it, is a straight-up conspiracy theory. One of the other defenses we're likely to hear is that, well, the Ukrainian government actually didn't have any awareness that their aid was being held up to basically investigate Joe Biden's son. And, of course, we've heard multiple times during the hearings in the House this was not the case. It sounds like Ukraine actually had knowledge about this much earlier in the summer. They didn't just find out about it in September. So can you talk about that aspect a little bit in terms of how Republicans might say, well, this is perfectly fine because Ukraine didn't even know that their aid was being held up? The evidence goes back showing that Ukraine may have even known that aid was being held up on July 25th, on the day of Trump's phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, Laura Cooper, I believe, who was a Pentagon official, testified that she received an email on that day about aid being held up to Ukraine, about questions of whether Ukraine would be getting the aid that they were congressionally uh, slated to receive. We have a Ukrainian official who told the New York Times recently that she was aware as early as late July. This notion that Ukraine somehow didn't know that they were being extorted is simply nonsense. The message was delivered over and over again, both that military aid was being withheld and that Trump was demanding this investigation. That was on the front page of the New York Times. Rudy Giuliani told the New York Times all the way back in May that Trump wanted Ukraine to investigate his political opponents, 
And then, of course, Trump himself said it on the White House lawn. So there's really no question that Ukraine understood that aid was being withheld, that the White House meeting was being withheld, and that the Trump administration's demand was for them to open investigations into Trump's political opponents. Well, let's talk about Rudy Giuliani a little bit more here, because as, was, as I was reading through in the Moscow Project, you guys are talking about how, while Rudy Giuliani was, of course, pushing you know, for on behalf of Donald Trump and his kind of extortion scheme, he might have also had his own interests at play as well. Can you talk about what possibly Rudy Giuliani would be looking about, looking at in terms of his own interests just beyond helping Donald Trump? Absolutely. And this gets to an important point. Trump's defenders are saying that he was sincerely concerned about fighting corruption in Ukraine. All of the evidence shows that Trump and his team were, in fact, fostering corruption in Ukraine. Giuliani was palling around with these two Soviet-born Florida businessmen, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, and it looks like they were pursuing corrupt schemes for their own profit in Ukraine. Parnas and Fruman, it appears, were angling to get Ukraine to replace members of the board of its natural gas company in order to uh, swing very lucrative, liquefied natural gas deals with them. There's even some instances where it appears that this is linked to an indicted Ukrainian oligarch named Dmitry Firtash. He has been fighting extradition to the U.S. for years now. He's living in Vienna, and Parnas and Fruman appear to have been working on his behalf in pushing these schemes. And it looks like Giuliani may have been involved in those schemes as well. We know that there is a federal investigation that involves looking at him not only for the Ukraine scandal as we know it in terms of um, in terms of efforts to interfere in American democracy, but whether he may have been part of that corrupt business scheme as well. And of course, another person who could be implicated in this as well is one of the staunchest Trump defenders in Congress, that would be Devin Nunez, who appears to actually have had contact with a couple of these Rudy Giuliani associates who were later indicted, so he could certainly be in some trouble as well. This is one of the more alarming things in the House Intelligence Committee's report on the uh, Ukraine scandal, is that Devin Nunes appears to have exchanged at least four phone calls with Lev Parnas, one of those Soviet-born indicted businessmen uh, who is running their corrupt schemes in Ukraine. And it's not just that. There's been reporting in CNN and the Daily Beast and other outlets that says that Parnas is willing to testify that his involvement with Nunes, his interactions with Nunes and his staff went significantly further than the American people currently know. Now, Nunes denies it. He's, in fact, suing, I believe, CNN for more than $400 million to dispute the claims. But that suggests that somebody who was partially in charge of running the Ukraine investigation may have himself been a fact witness, if not directly implicated, in this behavior as well. It overall just looks like an overwhelming crime ring with the number of people who have been implicated in all of these schemes. Is there any other names we should be bringing up that we should probably be talking about as well? Because one name I don't often hear, and it looks like he's also been very involved in this, is Mike Pence. Can you talk about that or some other people who aren't getting a lot of attention in the media that are very involved in this whole conspiracy and kind of crime ring? Pence has basically spent three years trying to avoid being implicated in any of Trump's scandals, and this looks like the one that may finally catch up to him. Uh, Sondland, for example, testified that 
Pence was one of the people who was in the loop on the Ukraine extortion scheme, that Pence was updated at least once, if not more times, on the investigations that Trump wanted Ukraine to pursue. There's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who, again, appears to have been updated at least once, if not multiple times, about Trump's extortion scheme and was actually listening in on the July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And then there's Bill Barr, who is, again, currently giving an interview in which he just said that he doesn't think that there's sufficient evidence to say that Ukraine didn't interfere in the 2016 election. Trump explicitly invoked Barr on that phone call with Zelensky, told Zelensky to call Attorney General Barr to talk about these investigations. Barr was specifically named in the whistleblower complaint and yet has not recused himself from anything to do with the Ukraine investigation. And now he is once again carrying the president's water, giving this interview again just today in which he repeats the president's favorite conspiracy theories in direct contravention to all of the evidence in front of us. And one final point to bring up here, Jeremy, before we do have to wrap things up, is that I think ultimately what we're going to hear in the Senate, uh, especially from a lot of Republicans, is that we don't have the full smoking gun in the sense we don't have Trump admitting on tape that he was trying to bribe and extort Ukraine, and we don't have the actual audio from the phone calls. But there's so much circumstantial evidence, and even that's how it works in the criminal justice system. You don't need a direct red-handed conviction confession. All you need is just a whole lot of circumstantial evidence to basically prove your case. And that certainly appears to be the scenario we're running into with Trump and Ukraine, where we have just an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence that points to the fact that, well, he was basically bribing the Ukrainian government. Right. And I would actually say that there have been smoking guns. The July 25th call, Trump's announcement on the White House lawn that he wanted Ukraine to investigate the Bidens, Mick Mulvaney's press conference. There's so much smoke from all the guns that it's hard to see the guns. But on top of that, the reason that there isn't more firsthand testimony, the reason that there isn't more smoking gun evidence, if that's what Republicans really want of Trump's wrongdoing, is that the White House has been blocking any evidence from coming forward. They've blocked at least a dozen witnesses, at least 10 of whom received congressional subpoenas to appear before Congress. They're refusing to release thousands of documents. Uh, I believe it was uh, the House counsel, Goldman, who said yesterday that he would, ha- he would love to have the problem of having to sort through all of the documents that they've requested from the White House to see if there was, in fact, a smoking gun of the president's behavior in there beyond the ones that we already know about. But the White House, I would say, seems to be aware that releasing that testimony, releasing those documents, would only further incriminate the president and his inner circle, and is doing everything it can to make sure that Congress does not see that. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Jeremy Vanuk. He is a research analyst with the Moscow Project and has been following this investigation closely, what's been happening with the Ukraine, and also, of course, prior to what's happening with Russia as well. Hey, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me. Again, that interview you just heard with Jeremy was recorded back in December, but I still think there was a lot of relevant information there, being that a lot of these conspiracy theories are still things we're probably going to hear in the Senate impeachment trial that will be taking place in the coming days and months. All right, we got one segment left on the show, and we'll get to that coming up next.
950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, final segment of the show. And not a whole lot of time, so do want to remind you about a couple of events that we have coming up. On January 29th, I am going to be hosting an event with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University as we are going to be holding a forum on impeachment. That'll be Wednesday, January 29th at Hamlin University, Anderson Room 305. We'll get the doors open at about 6 o'clock with the talk beginning at 7. We'll have a chance for a Q&A and overall should just be a really fun night. And also importantly with this event, it is free, no cost whatsoever. So hope to see you there at Hamlin on Wednesday, January 29th. Also, don't forget the Blue State Ball is coming up on Sunday, February 23rd. It's going to be at Bauhaus Brew Labs in Minneapolis. Now, this is a little bit different than what we've done in years past. First up, that change, of course, is that it's going to be on Sunday rather than the typical Friday or Saturday night that we've done in the past. It'll actually be a Sunday afternoon event where we'll have our VIP at noon with then general admission at 1 o'clock. We'll, of course, have some great speakers, including Tom Hartman and Matt McNeil. Hopefully we'll have some political guests as well. And also it should be a fun celebration being that it is the 15-year anniversary of AM950 being on the airwaves. So overall, I think this should be a really fun Blue State Ball, even though it will look a little bit different than years past. It'll be a little less formal than what we've had in the past, but a whole lot of fun, especially being out there at Bauhaus Brew Labs. Find details at am950radio.com. Again, that's the Blue State Ball. It'll be Sunday, February 23rd at Bauhaus Brew Labs. Again, details am950radio.com. That's going to do it for the show today. I'm back with a live show tomorrow.